Hi, uh, welcome to my podcast, um, which is a series uh, about leadership behavior at work. It's called Small Change. And Small Change is a book I'm writing about how small changes in behavior have a big impact on how you work lead or follow and today's podcast is about emotional intelligence and how CEOs with low EQ struggle in a crisis. EQ is the second component uh, of my career equity model which consists of your CV, your curriculum vitae, your emotional intelligence, and your reputation, which I call your PR. And although emotional intelligence is a vast subject covered in depth by Daniel Goldman in particular, in my work, I focus on just three issues. First, empathy. Second, self-awareness. And third, your ability to have your needs met productively. Empathy is, according to the dictionary, the ability to share someone else's feelings or experiences by imagining what it would be like to be in that person's situation. It's not to be confused with sympathy. You can be empathetic, but not sympathetic. Many, although not all, CEOs get to the top of organizations because they lack empathy. Their ruthlessness means they possess the so-called killer instinct to push others aside in the service of their own ambition. They can take what's known as the tough decisions, i.e. code for being tough on others, not themselves, without losing sleep. Being liked by all is not at all high on their agenda. People will work very hard for CEOs with low empathy from fear of their wrath, which is a powerful incentive. But if a CEO needs discretionary effort from them, meaning voluntarily going that extra mile, they won't get it. And in a crisis, no money can buy the crucial and intangible discretionary effort required from its workforce which is essential for sustainable recovery. In a crisis, a CEO is exposed much more nakedly than in normal times. They have no hiding place. They and they alone will carry the can. And in these circumstances, many double down on their ruthlessness and succeed for a while until their followers have had enough. Others flounder and fail because they cannot understand that one of the vectors 
of surviving a crisis is the quality of leadership during that crisis. Self-awareness means having good knowledge and judgment about yourself. In my work, I use a simple self-awareness test. I ask my leader clients, especially CEOs, if they know what main behavioral weakness people in their organization would say they have if I were to ask them, which I do. If they don't know, then there's a high chance that they frequently visit much unconscious cruelty on the people who work for them. This cruelty is horrible to witness and CEOs who are unconsciously cruel are flying blind. They don't know what they don't know. Hubris, meaning excessive pride, is the bedfellow of low self-awareness and hubris leads ultimately to failure, especially in a crisis. Usually I find the ability to meet needs productively to be the most complex issue of the three EQ components in helping people develop their emotional intelligence because getting one's needs met is at the heart of all conflict and all cooperation. CEOs with low empathy and low self-awareness get their needs met through brute force. This approach is not productive over the long term in normal times and rarely in a crisis. I use a tool called Feel, Need, Do, which has been developed by others, most notably Marshall Rosenberg in his book Nonviolent Communication, to help people work through three steps. First, what do you feel in relation to the issue at hand? Second, what do you need in relation to that feeling? And third, what can you do, i.e. what are your options to meet your need to address your feelings? Frequently, people in power under stress will act viscerally and will not assess all their options based on needs derived from an agreed shared purpose and having connected with their deeper feelings. For example, anger is a shallow feeling, frequently masking deeper feelings of, say, fear, anxiety, or hurt. The classic situation of a furious CEO letting rip is well known. Other CEOs use psychological tactics like shame. I once worked in an organization where the CEO simply had to use the D word with menace to exert control when disappointed. Public shaming was their control instrument of choice. Many CEOs believe that the behavior that got me here will get them through and get me there. Why wouldn't they? They know no other way of behaving. So many forget that the process of getting to the top is different from the processes required to be successful at the top. This argument hangs, of course, on what one means by successful, which in, in ordinary times is open to debate. But in a crisis, 
Success is about sustainable survival. Anything less means the CEO's legacy and reputation will be they weren't a great leader in a crisis. Even the most ruthless of CEOs tend to care about their legacies. And this might be an incentive for them to make at least a small change in their levels of empathy, self-awareness, and their ability to meet their needs productively. For most CEOs though, just a few small positive improvements in their EQ will have a big impact on their sustainable fulfillment and on that of the people they lead, especially in a crisis. Hi, I'm Kieran Fenton and welcome to my podcast series, Helping CEOs Get Through the COVID-19 Crisis. Now, today's episode is called Should You Oust Your Narcissistic CEO Now? Nick Cohen wrote a piece three years ago in The Observer, January 2017, mainly about Mr. Trump. But to my mind, it was also one of the best general essays on leadership I've read, and it remains highly relevant. A flavour of the piece is one paragraph where he says, No one in the West has seen Trump's kind of triumph. But look around your workplace. Little Hitlers, they exhibit all the symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder, less likely to engage in the hard work of innovating. His premise was that compulsive liars can create compulsive believers and their peers believe the stories these leaders tell about themselves. Dr. W. Keith Campbell, head of the Department of Psychology at the University of Georgia and co-author of The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement, explained in a HuffPost piece that people are on a continuum there's a range of narcissism. Most people are sort of in sort of in the middle, though some are more extreme than others. Slatan Kreisen, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Iowa State University, in the same HuffPost article, said, "If you do something to the narcissist that he doesn't like, it means you're against him, or you don't understand him." But what do you do if your current CEO is an extreme narcissist and is the worst type of leader in a crisis? I propose three steps. Step one, frame any challenge to your CEO in the context of a wider purpose. You might say, do you still agree that our organizational purpose is X and our strategy for achieving it is Y? And our plan for implementing that strategy is a Z, as already agreed by the board. 
they can't refute this unless they are proposing a change, and in which case that change must be approved by the board, or if they are bloody-minded, they will obfuscate, and in which case they've got to go, or you've got to go, especially in a crisis. Step two, I suggest you say, if step one goes well, and it may not, but if it does, you say, so do you agree that our behavior in broad terms to implement X, Y, and Z should reduce risks and maximize the opportunity of achieving that outcome? If you keep your description of the desired behavior unthreatening in tone, they are likely to agree. And if they don't, then you can legitimately challenge their logic. And finally, step three, and this, I agree, is a tricky step. You might say, since you agree to the behavior we need to achieve our goals, can you see why those of us, including you, who behave contrary to that agreed target operating model, need to amend that behavior? The use of the term target operating model may help, as it's a well-known model which encompasses behavior. But if you feel its use will irritate, obviously don't use it. I acknowledge that these steps are like walking on eggshells. But many people I meet working with extremely narcissistic CEOs spend most of their time doing precisely that already. So why not walk in eggshells with a better purpose? But I do agree, it's no way to live. Nick Cohen believes that the solution to dealing with narcissistic people is to work hard on converting the people who support them. Once they are starved of that attention, only the seriously ill will resist. And in that instance, you have a choice to quit and find someone less damaged with whom you can work and find fulfillment. Or, in a crisis, you may need to oust your CEO before they bring everything down. But what if you are the CEO in a crisis? And you are, as Dr. Campbell believes, somewhere in the middle of the narcissistic scale, like the rest of us, and not at the extreme end then you should confront this behavior in yourself first, then help your top team do the same, and then agree a new shared purpose, strategy, and behavior plan. Do it today, or you may find that you are ousted unfairly. Hi, I'm Kieran Fenton, and welcome to my podcast series for CEOs at a time of pandemic. Today's episode is titled Why COVID-19 CEOs Should Remember Chilcot's Criticism of Sofa-Style Decision-Making. When the Chilcot report into the Iraq invasion was published in November 2016, the Guardian newspaper reported that 
Giving evidence to a parliamentary committee, Chilcot said, SOFA government, in which ministers were not consulted on crucial decisions, reached a high point. On several occasions between 2002 and 2007, things were decided without reference to cabinet. The rights and wrongs of the Iraq invasion, or the strengths and weaknesses of Mr Blair, are not my focus here. How decisions are made by what I call COVID-19 CEOs, those CEOs unlucky enough to be in charge during and after the COVID-19 crisis is. Andrew Hill, at the time, observed in the Financial Times. What does this report, meaning the Chilcot report, tell us? He says the same old corporate and political story of how an excess of certitude at the top can lead to catastrophe. If chief executives know little else, they know that they have to take decisions. The report advocates wider and deeper discussion in cabinet and committees, separation of risk assessments from policy decisions and independent audit of strategy as it's implemented. All good advice for CEOs considering important strategic moves. It casts doubt, for example, on Mr Blair's predilection for sofa-style government where many leaders draw strength and advice from an inner circle. The sofa, where a few intimates discuss strategy, was exceedingly comfy. Mr Blair seems to have had a strong need for cognitive closure, an instinct to make judgment and then stick with it, described in Charles Duhigg's book, Smarter, Faster, Better. Many successful decision-makers eventually overreach. So, the Chilcot Inquiry criticism of sofa-style decision-making is a grim reminder of the importance of good corporate governance that encourages challenge by dissenters. But how many leaders are emotionally equipped to encourage this? I recall myself as a young divisional managing director and a member of a group executive committee being told by an old hand who whispered to me at my first meeting, you can always tell who the new people are at XCOM meetings, he said. How's that, I asked. They're smiling, he said. They sure as hell stop smiling after their first public slap, as I learned for myself, painfully, in due course. So what's to be done by you, you COVID-19 CEOs? Leadership 101 is my answer. How about some old-fashioned meetings with an agenda, motions, pros and cons discussions, permission to have devil, devil's advocates in the room, votes, or at least shows of hands, and above all, minutes written after and not drafted before the meeting. The problem is that the very personality traits that propel some leaders to the top, including you, are the ones which would prevent them from changing behaviour to accommodate dissent. 
but there is a chink of light here. Apart from utter psychopaths, and I acknowledge that a few of these stalk the corridors of corporate power, most dysfunctional leaders are merely playing out, as the experts tell us, behaviour patterns established in their formative years. So, if they can be brought to see, if you can be brought to see, that even small changes in behaviour, for example, listening to a contrary view, just 10 times more out of every 100 interactions, that's only 10% behavioural change. This can lead to improved outcomes for them and for you and as an incentive to change. But we must face these issues now in the thick of COVID-19 since, as day follows night, there will be a COVID Chilcot-type inquiry. And already we are getting some insights into the horrors that these that this uh, report may contain. Imagine for a moment there's going to be a Chilcot-type inquiry into your behaviour as CEO during COVID-19. How will you emerge from that? You can decide today. Either behave as you usually do and you will, you will almost certainly err. Or you can stretch your behaviour during these stressful times and do what athletes do, strive for peak performance. But you don't even have to suffer half as much as athletes do. Just listen to others before you make decisions. How much can that hurt? Andrew Hill puts it very well in his FT piece. He said, The test of their greatness is how willing they are to consider the alternatives to what may appear a clear course of action before making a bold executive order. Duhigg tells the cautionary tale of the Israeli general Eli Zira, who failed to spot the imminent Yom Kippur War in 1973. Years later, the ex-officer admitted that, before making his fateful decisions, he should have referred to a talismanic note he always carried. On it were written three words, and if not. Hi, I'm Kieran Fenton and welcome to my podcast series uh, addressed mainly to CEOs getting through COVID and out the other side. Um, today's podcast is titled COVID-19 CEOs. Resilience isn't code for suck it up. Here we go again, another crisis and another in word. After previous crisis, the word engagement, which by the way, was code for you engaging with us, not the other way around, was all the rage. Now it's resilience. You can't turn a page, scan an online newspaper or website without the R word screaming at you. And I don't mean that other R word, the virus 
reproduction rate. I mean resilience. To be fair, most writers use the word, use of the word is well-intentioned. For example, if you Google resilience, first up on my browser at least, after the adverts, and all credit to their SEO people, is Deloitte with combating COVID-19 with resilience. Leaders like you are responding to one of the most sweeping crises in recent memory. Calling for both empathy and action to guide your people and businesses through uncertain times. This page gathers Deloitte's global insights to help you not only respond to this crisis, but recover and thrive. I'm sure Deloitte didn't mean it has found a cure for coronavirus, which a literal interpretation of its headline suggests, but that resilience will help your business recover and thrive by guiding your people with empathy and action. What's wrong with that, you ask? Isn't Deloitte, isn't Deloitte's purpose to sell consulting services? And are they not merely demonstrating how much they are in touch with the zeitgeist and the needs of their clients? Boston Consulting Group takes a similar approach. Its website on the subject says, how mindfulness can boost our adaptive resilience to COVID-19. COVID-19, it says, is having dramatic impacts on our world, while the coronavirus inflicts damage on health, society and the economy. It also exerts a strong emotional impact on individuals. If we let ourselves be hijacked by what we classically call negative emotions, we risk reacting blindly and impulsively. Similarly, Ernst & Young, or EY, as it now is, notes in its 10 ways to enhance firm-wide resilience. Number 10 is promote a learning, resilient culture. In the end, it says... Resilience is about having the organizational discipline and nimbleness to develop and constantly enhance the firm's plans and capabilities to deliver services continuously. This requires a culture that is open to learning from past mistakes and events, those of the firm and its peers, and that promotes timely and effective remedial and enhancement activities. This focuses attention on changing human behaviours, making employees appreciate their important role because resilience is very much in their hands. It is not someone else's job. If successful, this creates the necessary conditions for a resilient culture. So is EY wrong? No, of course not. All three world-leading management consultancies are making absolutely valid points. My concern, though, is the danger that the underlying purpose of consultants and CEOs focus on resilience shifts very quickly from people's needs to business needs exclusively. And there are hints of this in the extracts above. EY gets to people and culture only fully in their point number 10. Their earlier nine ways are great, but they are mainly about business process. 
BCG's excellent article feels it necessary to use a metric, presumably because they feel they must. They say the 31 teams that participated in a 10-week mindfulness program showed an average 13%, that's 1-3, 13% increase in their collective intelligence. Wow, 13%. And Deloitte is quick to point out that leadership focus should expand from a, quotes, very inward, brackets, and entirely appropriate, close brackets, focus on employee safety and operational continuity to also include embracing a return to a market-facing posture. Note the brackets. The dictionary definition of resilience is, quotes, the ability to be happy, successful, etc. after, again, after something difficult or bad has happened. That's it. The ability to be happy, successful, etc. Again, after something difficult or bad has happened. It's a noun. And the verbs used with it give it force. In the extracts above, we have Deloitte combating with resilience and BCG boosting with resilience. resilience and EY abandons the noun altogether and uses the adjective form as in a resilient culture. But the use of this language assumes everyone has the same ability to recover. It's as if resilience is a benchmarkable thing that anyone can achieve with the right processes. A bit like engagement. And look how long that fad lasted. If your purpose is to build a resilient culture after COVID-19, I'm afraid you're a bit late to the party. Now is not the time to be building a resilient culture that recovers when a, a, a crisis happens. It's too late, mate. The crisis has happened. The horse has bolted. Those organizations who long ago invested time and money in building kind cultures where people learned to be kind to themselves and kind to each other, these are the organizations that will recover faster. The resilience fad will be shorter lived than the engagement nonsense because some CEOs will quickly become frustrated and resilience will become code for suck it up, get your act together. And if you can't, we can find plenty of people who will, thereby wiping out any incentive for their people to give the discretionary effort absolutely required for organizations to recover. And no money will buy that discretionary effort. What's needed is not resilience, but kindness in helping people to recover from a trauma. And if you think that's a bit wet, go ahead. See how much discretionary effort you get from bullying already scared people. So, COVID-19 CEOs, one, take your time. Two, acknowledge that people have different rates of personal recovery. Help them. One size doesn't fit all. And three, be kind for kindness sake. Then and only then will you have a chance of recovering from this crisis and building a resilient culture 
for the next. Hi, I'm Kieran Fenton, and uh, welcome to my podcast series uh, addressed to, amongst others, uh, CEOs trying to get through COVID-19 and out the other side. Uh, today's episode is titled CEOs Forget Recovery. Instead, reframe, reset, and relaunch. Everyone is talking about the new normal, meaning that things will never be the same again, and we'll have to bally well get on with it. Yet the same commentators talk of recovery and reopening, as if it will merely be a case of removing dust sheets and shutters, and opening the doors to unchanged customers, as if nothing fundamental has changed. Well, it has. Ignore the screams from the right that no, 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 the business bailout is not the S word, but a proper intervention by right-wing governments to protect capitalism. Ignore the counter screams from the left that they were right all along, that the scale of the furlough system is proof as if proof were needed. Neither is true. The future belongs to the political centre and no one will return to work unchanged by an experience which matches any of the significant milestones in history in impact, if not in scale. The reason is one word, terror. As Nick Cohen wrote in The Observer on the 16th of May 2020, surely the reason why the British and so many other populations are obedient is that they are terrified. The only way the authorities can begin to clear up the mess they have made of this crisis is by understanding our fears and showing us how to improvise ways around them. Unfortunately, they show no sign of doing it. People will have a different response to the pandemic than they had after the 08 crash. Terror, not relief. But notably, the nascent CSR and purpose and ESG movements flourished after the crash. A sign of things to come. Cynics would point to the fact that, as the UK Banking Standards Board grimly reports annually, behaviour in the financial services sector has changed little since the crash. And after we settle back to work, behaviour will return to the old normal. CEOs, you should avoid this thinking trap and believe that at least one component, if not all, of your target operating model will be redundant post-COVID-19. Your operating model before the pandemic identified market needs, it assembled strategic resources to address those needs, and then applied your internal processes to apply the resources to meet the needs. But if consumers and business services buyers appear to want the same product and services as before, they will undoubtedly want changes to them, or in their delivery, or both, because of the changes to their buying needs and expectations driven by their 
pandemic experiences. Even if you continue to use, broadly speaking, the same inputs to your products and services as before, one of these will have changed irrevocably, and that is the mood of, as the manage management books uh, describe it, your people. Your people will be terrified of the virus spiking again. Terrified of economic uncertainty. And most of all, terrified by incompetent politicians and bosses. They will be terrified that you, their CEO, isn't up to the job in these new circumstances. They will be afraid that you possess neither the EQ nor the IQ required to create a safe and sustainable environment for them, never mind the usual purpose of leadership, which is to create an environment in which they can thrive. That's out the window now for the moment. Friedman is out and Maslow is back. You can forget maximising shareholder value because the people you need to do that started to abandon that philosophy after the crash and COVID-19 consign, consigns it to the dustbin of economic history. For sure, many employees will pay lip service to ROI because they have to, just as many employers paid lip service to ESG for the same reason. If you think fear of losing their jobs will drive compliance, think again, for people will undoubtedly comply to keep their jobs, but they won't go that extra mile you desperately need to recover, as you might put it. So no, your business will never recover because it will never be the same again. It can't. Forget recovery and reopening. Instead, reframe, reset and relaunch your business. Return your business to its factory settings, as it were. Bin your pre-COVID-19 business plan. Tell your CFO not to produce a reforecast, but to draw up new revenue and new cost budgets based on the output of a series of meetings with all your people, your management team and your main board, if you have one, to address the following questions. What should our purpose be now? What should our strategy be, strategy be now to achieve that purpose? And what behaviour should we employ to implement our new strategy? If a CEO, you go to a clean page and acknowledge changed market needs, changed employee needs and changed society needs post-COVID-19, you're in with a chance. Pretend nothing has changed fundamentally and you risk decline. As W.B. Yeats said in different circumstances, a terrible beauty is born. Hi, I'm Kieran Fenton and welcome to this uh, podcast series which is aimed at CEOs uh, or senior people leading teams uh, who are trying to get through COVID and out the other side. Um, today's episode, which is the sixth in the series, is titled How to Have a Proper Bloody Row with Your Board During COVID-19. I'm noticing an increase in boardroom tension 
since lockdown. Boardrooms are always full of human drama. But based on calls I'm receiving and what I hear on the Zoom vine, COVID-19 is bringing way more heat than light into our C-suites than usual. Roughly speaking, the rows are about three issues. The other person isn't doing what I want them to do. The other person is behaving appallingly towards me, stroke others, but mainly towards me. The other person doesn't get it, meaning they don't get me. Does this sound familiar? What if the other person changed their behavior because you changed yours? Can you imagine that? You know deep down that even though you want to throttle the other person, you need them. They need you. And the organization needs both of you at full throttle, as it were, in the service of the people in your organization at this time of existential risk to get us all out of this mess. The cost of an unresolved row between two senior leaders during a crisis is incalculable. A few years ago, at the Hay Festival, I attended a fascinating lecture by historian Anthony Beaver about his new book, it was then new, Arnhem, The Battle for the Bridges, 1944, in which he describes almost on an hour-by-hour basis, that devastating defeat. During the Q&A, I asked him if there was any evidence about the behaviour of the decision-makers involved in the plan, codenamed Operation Market Garden. He said that the behaviour that led to decision-making errors was appalling. Nothing that would surprise you or your colleagues. Overconfidence, wrong or skewed intelligence, last-minute changes, poor communications, and above all, vanity. As with many boards, dissenting voices were never or neither encouraged nor heeded. One member of the military team saw the flaws in the plan but was ignored and sidelined, a regular occurrence in business. I had a sense that the top team were rowing not just about strategy, but about bruised or potentially bruised egos. I acknowledge that the war context is wholly different in implications than in peacetime business and is not, compa is not comparable, but the behaviour is identical. And it's not just the cost of bad rows at the top that matter. It's the opportunity cost, which can be even higher. According to historians, the failure of Operation Market Garden ended hopes of finishing the war before the end of 1944, a huge opportunity cost of not having, in my terms, a few proper military boardroom rows. I understand that you may feel that the example is a bit OTT for your organisation. That doesn't happen here. 
you might say. But let me give you a sense how I've seen this play out elsewhere in other organizations. The other person on the team or board is not pulling their weight. The other person on the team or board is taking dangerous risks. The other person is impossible to work with and they're getting worse and so on. What if there was a way through this? What if it were possible to have a proper row, i.e. one where tough stuff gets said, but the outcome is productive? What if this angst, which is keeping you, or if not you, someone else awake at night, could somehow go away so that you can all get stuff done? What might that process look like? Well, you and the other person would would you not be on the same page on your objectives? You and the other person would be on the same page on the approach to achieving those objectives, would you not? You and the other person would be on the same page as to how everyone should behave in getting there, would you not? In theory at least, would that not mean that any disagreement could be sorted in the light of these three steps? In theory, yes. But how can this be put into practice without the exchange going totally off the rails and ending in disaster? My solution is to have a proper bloody row. By proper, I mean one that ends productively. By bloody, I mean no holes barred in terms of expressing how strongly you feel. By row, I mean a robust exchange of views on a matter of shared interest. Here are the steps I use in advising clients who ask how they should confront the other person. Step one, meet or Zoom the other person. Do not, repeat, do not write an email. You cannot have a proper bloody row by email. You're not Tolstoy. Step two, ask them if they still agree with what I call the PSB of the business. That is, its current purpose, its current strategy, and its current behavior plan. Frequently, I find that there are unaddressed or unresolved differences of opinion, particularly on purpose and strategy, which are the underlying causes of many rows. No team or board can achieve success unless they have a shared purpose and a shared strategy. If one person wants to get rich at all costs and another sees money merely as a collateral benefit of providing a product or service that they love, then they don't have a shared purpose, can't have a shared strategy, and rows are inevitable. It's clear from Anthony Beaver that the generals and politicians didn't exactly have a shared purpose. Their project was doomed from the start. Step three, provided only that you're on the same page as to purposes and strategy. And if you're not, do not, repeat do not, move to step three, which is the bloody bit. And, th and by that I mean you tell the other person in no uncertain terms how you feel. By that I don't mean how you feel about them. I mean how you feel concerning the impact of the other's behaviour on the already shared, agreed shared purpose and strategy. 
This is part of a feel, need, do approach that many experts, including Marshall Rosenberg in his book Nonviolent Communication, recommend. You can't go wrong if you start the sentence with the word I and not you, as in, I feel anxious about how we're going to get through COVID-19. We need all hands on deck to get through it and achieve what we all agreed at the last board meeting. And I feel that you are distracted and doing other things and we need you fully on board. And I feel you're not. I'll be honest. I feel furious about that. But more importantly, I'm worried about the business. Full stop. Don't be tempted to, the, to use the word frankly, which will emphasise your anger. While you can honour your anger, it's best to focus on your anxiety as it is a deeper truth than your anger and the other person is more likely to listen to your concerns. Step four, shut up. Don't speak. Stay silent. This is key. Let the other person speak. Do not interrupt them. Step five, continue to use feel, need, do, and link it with organizational purpose, strategy, and behavior, PSB, no matter what they say. For example, you find they say that, fair comment, I am up to my eyes with other stuff, and they admit that they're failing and, and, and things move on. Or, and in which case, you can move on to step six. Or they might say, I don't accept that. How would you know anyway what I'm doing? You never call me except to moan. How dare you traduce me like this? Or they might say something else. The key point is that you don't know what they feel until they tell you. And if you attack them, why would they tell you anything? And you might learn something new. And you might find, as is usually the case, that there are two sides to the row and you may be part of the problem. If you are, own it. Step six, agree a soft contract on future behavior in the light of your shared purpose, strategy and behavior, your shared PSB, and what you both have learned from the exchange, as in, I've agreed to check in with you more often and you've agreed to be more present. Step seven, legislate for the breach of the soft contract. Being human, each of you will not um, each of you are, are likely to breach your self-contract. Agree in advance how to call out that breach. People vary in how they like to be told off. Some can't bear confrontation in a group, so t tell them in a one-to-one -one session. Above all, avoid shaming. So these seven steps work with most clients, but some say, those steps sound great, but won't work with our ex. He, she is a total psychopath. To which I say, if you're sure they're that bad, then leave. Or why not try it? And I know from experience that if you change your behavior, you will notice at least some shift in theirs. Finally, how do you know you are not part of the problem? unless you ask. How? Hi, 
I'm Kieran Fenton and welcome to my podcast series on uh, CEOs or for CEOs and boards and teams getting through COVID-19 and out the other side. Uh, today's episode is titled Why CEOs Should Reset Their Relationship with Their Lawyers During COVID-19. The role of lawyers in the day-to-day running of a business is to enable better business decisions through excellent legal counsel and process. During COVID-19 and in its aftermath, businesses need their lawyers more than ever to reduce risks and maximise innovation in adversity. Decisions which are taken by CEOs, boards and teams under extreme stress are more prone to error um, than in normal times. Executives at all levels may abandon standard legal processes in favour of shortcuts. Communication and consultation suffer in many organisations. There is anecdotal evidence that some early stage and rapid growth organisations have decided they no longer need a general counsel relying instead on more junior and potentially more biddable in-house lawyers or more arm's length external law firms. That CEOs and senior executives are not inviting in-house lawyers to crucial meetings. And finally, that some lawyers are pulling back from their usual follow-up habit of checking that their advice is being followed because they feel such follow-up is not welcomed. Based on my and other consultants' experience in working, writing and speaking with and about lawyers and their relationships with CEOs, their boards and teams, I suspect that the actual situation is far, far worse than the anecdotal evidence suggests. If you are a CEO, you should be worried about the top and emerging risks that this reality presents to your organisation. The reason I'm so sure that during COVID-19 that these risks on your risk register, if it's up to date, are not green, not amber, but red for your organisation, is that in normal times, CEOs, boards, teams, lawyers and regulators failed to confront what everyone knew and knows to be true, that the relationship between commercial lawyers and CEOs, boards and teams is broken and has been broken since at least the 1970s in respect of the long-term sustainability of businesses and the interests of society. This evidence that everyone knows and knew is contained in detailed academic research, surveys and case law. But you don't need these. Just listen to lawyers' stories or ask CEOs about the problem as I and others have done. The lawyers' stories are chilling If even 10% of what, in inverted commas, goes on were to reach the front pages of the newspapers, there would be a public outcry. Conversely, ask CEOs about the problem, as I and others have done, and you'll find them living in a parallel universe with no insight into the danger of their collusion, conscious or not, with a lie. And the lie is that society believes, in good faith, that when push comes to shove, in-house commercial lawyers always act independently of their CEOs, boards and teams. They don't. And sometimes out-of-house law firms don't either. 
If a lawyer reports to you as CEO, then you control them. In career terms, you effectively own them. That's what reporting to means. It's not just their pay and rations you control, or their annual reviews and performance scores, but their career advancement and sense of personal fulfillment. And yet your in-house lawyer is an officer of the court with powers that no one else in your organization holds, including the power to have a privileged conversation with you and an obligation by their regulator to, to act independently, although the regulator leaves it up to the lawyer to report anything, in inverted commas, so that leaves the regulator off the hook. Think about it for a minute. How can your lawyer, who reports to you, act independently of you when it's as clear as day that they depend on you so much? Many lawyers will protest that they do stand up to their CEOs, and I'm sure they do, but many don't or feel they can't, and in any event, doing so shouldn't be exceptional. It should be BAU, as they say, business as usual, and it isn't. None of this would matter much because it's gone on for years and would go on for more years, but for the coronavirus pandemic. This is a game changer. Normal rules don't apply. But just as successive governments failed to prepare for a pandemic, lawyers in-house and out, CEOs, boards, teams and regulators failed to create an environment in which the independence of in-house lawyers is enforceable. If I were in your position as a COVID-19 CEO, and since you can't fix, fix this mess created by all parties, I would act now and take three decisions. One, change your in-house lawyer's reporting line from you to the board via the chair and do it today. Two, ask the board to explain to them how it intends to reframe the organization's purpose, strategy and behavior plan in the light of COVID-19. Three, ask, don't tell them, what legal counsel and process they feel is needed to achieve those outcomes. Listen to them, keep them in the room, then get out of their way. And if lawyers fail to deliver, they will no longer be able to blame you, as in some part at least, they can blame you now. Hi, I'm Kieran Fenton and welcome to my podcast series for CEOs, boards and teams during the COVID-19 crisis. Today's episode is called CEOs, seven reasons why the FRC code is your unlikely roadmap through COVID-19, even for SMEs. Simon Sinek is unlikely to shout out, start with the FRC code. You won't find a TED talk titled FRC, the cool code out of COVID city. Nor will hashtag CorpGov be trending anytime soon. J.A. Sutherland, writing in his book, Ensuring General Wisdom, the critical role non-executive directors and trustees play 
in executive performance, says, no one leaps out of bed in the morning, breathes deeply and cries, today I'm going to govern corporately. Let's face it, the term corporate governance is a bit boring. J.A. Sutherland believes corporate governance is really about good leadership, and he's right. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, there's a secure link between good leadership, good governance, and getting your organization through the crisis and out the other side. If you're lost, you need a map. And many CEOs, although they wouldn't admit it, are lost as to how to lead their organizations at this time. They need a map. The UK FRC Code on Corporate Governance 2018 is an unlikely map for CEOs, even for SMEs, and those organisations not obliged to comply with it. Here are seven reasons why. 1. It's mercifully short, at a time when you need brevity. The authors must have followed Churchill's advice and went through the pain of writing a short document when it would have been much easier to write a long, rambling one. It's only 15 pages long. 2. It's clear at a time when you need clarity. The code is written in plain English, favouring sentences with ordinary nouns and verbs, especially the modal verb should. You are left in no doubt as to what you should do. The code is well structured for your needs during COVID. Five sections covering one, leadership stroke purpose, that is yours as CEO, and perhaps the urgent need now to reframe your purpose. Two, responsibilities. These, of course, may have to change. Three, composition, succession, evaluation. Do you have the right people on the bus for this time? Four, audit, risk, and internal control. These three invariably suffer in a crisis. And finally, remuneration. Well, it's not as if that won't be top of mind, will it? Four, each section sets out clear principles at a time when you need to reduce board and team conflict by everyone first signing up to agreed principles. Arguments when they arise, as they surely will, can be settled faster in the light of these principles. Each provision in each section is practical, actionable and relevant to your organisation's needs during COVID-19. Unless, of course, it's evident that a provision doesn't apply to your organisation because of its size. And there are not many of these. Six. The code does not favour a tick-box approach. In fact, it's strong on behaviour and a good, thing, a good thing too, since your organization's survival in this crisis depends on your and your team's conduct. And the definition of conduct is behaviour over time. Seven. Finally, an excellent set of notes titled The FRC Guidance on Board Effectiveness 2018 accompanies the code. These expand on each section of the code with useful lists of questions. 
If I were facilitating your next COVID crisis meeting, I would start with three from the first set of questions in the guidance on page four, because the temptation now may be to focus on cutting costs and maximising cash, which may be the wrong strategy. These questions would help CEOs and boards stop and reflect in order to agree a new strategy in the light of the pandemic. Question one. What proportion of board time is spent on financial performance versus other matters of strategic importance? Two, how will we assess and measure the impact of our decisions on financial performance, the value for shareholders, and the impact on key stakeholders? Three, are are shareholders driving the company to act in a way that is out of line with its purpose, values, and wider responsibilities. These three questions should bring more light and less heat to any crisis discussion at this time. You can download the code and the guidance at frc.org. Hi, I'm Kieran Fenton and welcome to my podcast series for CEOs, um, boards and teams getting through COVID-19 and out the other side. Today's episode is titled Three Lessons COVID-19 CEOs Can Learn from Mr. Johnson's and Mr. Cummings' CEO COO relationship. Let's say, for the sake of argument, and I know there are some flaws in the analogy, that Mr. Johnson is the equivalent of a COVID CEO and Mr. Cummings the equivalent of a COVID COO in business. In normal times, the CEO COO relationship is tricky. In times of pandemic, it's positively problematic. COVID-19 CEOs and COOs are like no other CXOs, whether they like it or not. At the risk of teaching granny to suck eggs, here's a reminder of what a CEO and COO are and what they should be doing. First, the CEO. A CEO is, or you are, and it's worth pointing out the obvious, because some forget it and others ignore it, the chief executive officer in your organization. This should be obvious, should be unambiguous. The title is, as they say, what it says on the tin. The giveaway word is chief. Just reflect on the word chief before reading on, or you may wish to replace the word om with the word chief in your next yoga session. You as chief executive officer do three things and three things only, or should. One, help the people you lead to thrive. Two, 
grow or ensure your organization is flourishing. Three, balance the needs of, share, of stakeholders. I almost said shareholders, stakeholders. I have worked with many CEOs and all of them driven, but each of variable IQ and EQ. Few do all three things well. Some are brilliant at number two, growing or ensuring their organization is flourishing, but less so at number one, helping the people they lead to thrive, and number three, balancing the needs of stakeholders, except of course, many are great at delighting shareholders. And so to the COO, your COO is your chief operating officer and sits on your operating board and in some companies sits on your main board along with you and your CFO, your chief finance officer. The role and purpose of your COO is to keep your organization's promise with its customers. Nothing else in my view. I know that's controversial as many boards like to say that their COO runs the business day to day in quotes and their CEO does the strategic stuff in quotes. This is tosh in my humble opinion because your CEO must lead the business day to day. They can't duck that, I'm afraid, try as they might. Your board and people working in your organization need to be in no doubt who is boss. It's you, the CEO, full stop. Your COO reports to you. Your, your COO is not some joint CEO type person. Write a woolly COO job spec and you are begging for trouble and endless politics. People like to drive a wedge between the COO and CEO if they can. Don't be doing with that. It's a total waste of time. The strategic stuff, or so-called strategic stuff, is meaningless management speak and guff. A strategy is a sentence describing how your organization will achieve its purpose. It consists usually of one line as in, our strategy is to grow by rapid acquisition globally. There's no stuff to be done on strategy. Everyone on your operating board is involved in the implementation of your strategy, not just you or your COO. But only your COO is responsible for customer satisfaction. If your customers are unhappy, call your COO. Only one point of contact, one point of control. Only one person can or should fix it. In the old days, they would be called head of production or head of services. Today, they are heads of delivery. Side note, delivery is the one word I've tried to stop using but can't. Uh, and by stop using it, as I see it as a, as, as a word in management speak that I, 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 I can't avoid. I wrote to Lucy Kellaway when she was the doyen of eliminating management speak at the Financial Times to ask her advice. And she replied, never should the word delivery 
appears in a sentence in which a van does not also appear. Uh, I failed to do that. Anyway, so uh, you might ask, is the role and purpose of your COO in your organization clear and crisp or is it part of the problem on your operating board? Be honest. All except the pathological and narcissistic, and I have met a few of those, are, ca are capable of so much more if they made small changes in their behavior. And if you and your COO can change yours just a little, the impact can be big. So the three lessons you can learn from Mrs. Johnson and Cummings without getting into the politics are these. One, the impression is that Mr. Johnson doesn't call all the key shots. He should. And if you are a CEO, CEO, so should you, and everyone should know that it is you and you alone who calls them. Mr. Johnson should not have allowed Mr. Cummings to give a press conference alone in Number 10's Rose Garden. It confirmed the impression of leadership ambiguity at the top. Number two, Mr. Johnson is not paid to lead us, the people, but to lead his cabinet, his MPs in Parliament who represent us, and to lead his senior staff. His job is to create an environment in which they thrive so that we all will thrive. Since Mr. Cummings, Mr. Hancock and Mr. Rabb, to mention just three, will not go down in political history, in my view at least, as the greatest leaders at a time of pandemic, it's clear that Mr. Johnson is falling short of the high standards in his leadership of them. If they're not doing well, it's his responsibility, as is the performance of your CXOs. Sack them or help them, but don't ignore them. That will be a dereliction of your duty. Number three, Mr. Johnson and Mr. Cummings appear to have a shared purpose, P, a shared strategy, S, and a shared behaviour plan, B. That is a perfectly shared PSB in my leadership model. The not-so-tiny flaw is that their PSB is not shared by most, if not all, of the people they co-lead, and they are, sadly, co-leaders. Sadly, because joint leadership never works as well as single leadership. Mr. Johnson and Mr. Cummings reflect many singularly driven CEO-COO relationships in business, particularly in startup, early stage and rapid growth contexts. In these cases, the CEO and COO, usually co-founders, have a vision, in inverted commas, which phrase of itself should set off alarm bells. And they fail to take others with them, but rule with rods of iron. Don't do it. It will end in tears. And whilst the day will come when Mr. Johnson will use those famous words, we are leaving Downing Street 
for the last time. He is unlikely to shed a tear as Mrs. Thatcher did because she loved the job and I have a hunch that Mr. Johnson doesn't. But one way or another, Mr. Cummings won't be there to save his legacy. And your COO won't be there to save yours. Hi, I'm Kieran Fenton and welcome to my podcast for CEOs, leaders and teams trying to get through COVID-19. Today's episode is called COVID-19 CEOs. Stay alert for aggression, active and passive. Be kind to self and others. You are the CEO because you are demanding on yourself and others. When the going gets tough, the tough become bloody unreasonable. Don't. The novelty of lockdown has worn off. It's now a grind. An economic nightmare looms. The possibility of a second wave, real. The divorce pains of Brexit whether you voted for it or not, unavoidable. The early days of Zoom awkwardness are a distant memory. Interest in your bookshelves, a tired joke. Early genuine politesse, now just faux. You haven't changed. Your life situation has. If you were a bully before COVID-19, you're still one. If you were extremely passive-aggressive before the pandemic, rest assured the virus hasn't cured you. But bullying and extreme passive-aggression are poles on a spectrum upon which we all sit somewhere. We all bully sometimes. We are all passive-aggressive sometimes. One client CEO said to me that he, she, wanted to have a good pandemic, a war reference. The importance of having a good war, not letting yourself or others down, I sensed this was a genuine wish and a real fear a desire to behave well, fear of not. You can't fix those on the extremes of the aggression spectrum, but there are three things you can do as a CEO if you want to avoid your unconscious behavior, making things worse for yourself and for others. Number one, give bad things bad names. Don't say on the one hand, these are unprecedented times, abnormal and weird, while on the other hand, expecting everyone, including yourself, to behave normally. This is not the Blitz. This is not about the Dunkirk spirit. Saying so is a disservice to both. This is a pandemic, a virus. Don't personify it as an enemy. Enemies generate aggression. People are dying. 
but there are no bullets. You could die. Your colleagues could die. That's a terrifying reality to face daily. Allow yourself and others to say out loud that they are afraid of a deadly virus. That's normal behaviour. Create space for it. Don't smother fear. Don't shut people down. If you do, their fear will surface elsewhere under another guise where it may harm you, others and the business. Number two, let yourself off the hook. You're not a war general. You're a CEO trying to get through this. Be kind to yourself. Allow yourself to feel shit and not feel bad about feeling that way. This is an internal process. The first step in the feel, need, do triad, which is a useful tool in relationship management. What do you feel? If you feel rubbish, acknowledge it. Next, what do you need apart from not feeling so awful? A break? Some TLC from someone else? Both? You feel what you feel. You need what you need. These are not up for debate. They are what they are. You may be a CEO, but you're not omnipotent. You control neither your feelings nor your needs at this moment. They may change, but not now. They are what they are. But you can manage your options around what you do with your feelings and your needs. One option is to show your feelings and make your needs plain to your team. Three, you're not a war general. It's okay to show your fear to your team. In fact, it's essential. Show your vulnerability and your team will feel they have permission to show theirs. Moreover, you may get what you need from them. Just because you lead them doesn't mean they can't or don't want to care for you. But if you shut them down with aggression or passive aggression, you get compliance. And the last thing you need in a crisis that is not a war is compliance to suit your moods. It could kill your business if not you or them. So be kind to yourself and kind to others. And you get through this and remember Affect the virus. Hi, I'm Kieran Fenton, and welcome to my podcast uh, aimed at CEOs and senior leaders trying to get through COVID nineteen and out the other side. Today's episode is titled "CEOs." a seven-step COVID-19 business relaunch plan. Last week, I worked with a CEO who leads a rapid growth, multi-site retail business, trying to figure out how to relaunch after his employees come back from furlough. If you're in the same position or similar, I propose a seven-step COVID-19 business plan process. Step one, bin, that means throw in the bin, 
all previous plans. Don't be tempted to reforecast the current financial year's P&L in the light of COVID-19 using your pre-COVID business plans, revenue and cost budget. They're out of date. Everything has changed. Step two, draft a new PSB statement. Start with a clean page and write a brand new PSB statement, by which I mean your reframed purpose P, strategy S, and behavior plan B in the light of COVID-19. Step three, develop a new target operating model or TOM from scratch. A target operating model consists of at least three elements, market needs, strategic resources and processes to meet those needs. Step four, draft a zero-based revenue and cost budget. Don't refer to the previous budget, but build a line-by-line -line new budget as if a startup. Step five, circulate the new PSB, TOM and budget. Gather as much feedback as possible. Step six, appoint a devil's advocate. Um, they must have permission to challenge everything. Step seven, sign it off. If you have a board, have a formal vote. There should be no hiding place, nor should driving the plan through on the nod be an option. So how do you develop a COVID-19 PSB statement? First, well, there are three questions. First, how will your business purpose change in the light of the pandemic? You may say that your business purpose hasn't changed at all. You may say that your purpose remains exactly the same, maximizing return for shareholders. But that assumes that your customers, employees, and society are content that your mandate, your mandate to trade remains the same as before, when there's a strong possibility that it won't. The environment, society and governance, i.e. ESG movement, which was well underway before the virus, will, I suspect, resurge, if perhaps after an initial falling off in ethical investing. Even if you feel that ESG will lose favour in the face of the harsh realities of a recession, you should have the courage to include that prediction in your PSD state, PSB statement and be judged on it. In the case of my CEO client, his business, as it happens, is likely to benefit from increased customer need for his services because of the pandemic, but he will have to be very careful indeed how his market proposition is articulated or articulates that benefit. Any hint of exploitation could be very damaging to his brand. So we work together on what language he might use to reframe his organization's purpose, how that change would feed into his marketing plan how he would have to change his leadership behavior in articulating that purpose to customers and all stakeholders, particularly in interviews, blogs, and on social media. Second question, how will your business strategy S change in the light of your reframed purpose? If your business purpose changes even a little, your strategy to achieve that purpose must change at least a little. In the case of my client, we are exploring a new strategy which, fo which focuses on contributing to customers' recover from recovery from lockdown. Third question, 
how will your business behavior plan B change in the light of your new strategy? This refers to the broad behavioral expectation on everyone in the organization in implementing the new strategy to achieve the reframed purpose. In practice, this involves throwing your pre-COVID-19 business plan and operating model in the bin and developing a new COVID target operating model or TOM. So how do you develop a new COVID TOM? There are again three questions. First, how will your market need change in the light of the pandemic? In my client's case, his customers need for his service will potentially increase, but how and where they want uh, to experience it will change. Second question, how will your strategic resources change? In my client's case, these consist of people, sites and kit, all of which may need to change for one reason or another. He may need to add new resources or substitute resources because of these changes. Third question, how will your strategic processes change? In my client's case, the main change is likely to be home delivery um, uh, of the service and uh, significant change in the sales and marketing processes. When you have drafted your new PSB and TOM tar target operating model statements and your zero-based budget, circulate these widely and get feedback on them. Before your board signs off the new budget and operating plan, appoint a devil's advocate with explicit permission to pick holes in the plan and not to sign it off before it passes the devil's advocate's test. For the avoidance of doubt, as the lawyers like to say, you can't be the devil's advocate, obviously.